Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free. Or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This is The Guardian. Hi, I'm Paul Karp, Guardian Australia's chief political correspondent. It's budget week in Canberra. So today we have a special edition of the Australian Politics Podcast with two interviews. My first guest is the Treasurer, Jim Chalmers, who just delivered the Albanese government's first full-year budget, revealing a projected surplus, the first in 15 years. Welcome, Treasurer. Thanks very much, Paul. Um, You've spoken about the task of balancing the cost of living relief with not adding to inflation. How did you decide that $14 billion of cost of living relief was what the budget could afford? And was keeping the $4 billion surplus this year an important goal in that decision? Well, well, first of all, I mean, every budget involves a series of fine balances, and this one was no exception. And what we tried to do is provide some help where we could, where we could afford to, uh, at the same time as we were conscious of the pressures on the budget and the pressures on the economy. And we got to this uh, package, which is broader than what people were speculating before the budget, you know, rent, uh, single parents, base rate of job seeker, energy bill relief, bulk billing relief. Uh, all of these things are really important and they overlap to some extent. Now, when it comes to the surplus, uh, it's a forecast surplus for this year only. Uh, and so we'll know in a couple of months whether we whether we got there or not. Um, but we need to be cautious about the budget, even with that big improvement in this year. Uh, and that's because a lot of these structural pressures get more difficult over time rather than getting easier. You'll hear Katie Gallagher and I talk about that a lot. You know, just because we're forecasting one surplus doesn't mean that everything all of a sudden is fine in the budget. A lot of those structural pressures are still there. We'll get onto that in a, in a minute about whether the future surplus as well in the second year will eventuate. But was it a factor in terms of how, how big the package could be? Oh, not really, no. Um, but I suspect what's underpinning your question is a sense of, you know, how sure could we be about the upward revisions to revenue and what did that mean for how we calibrated the budget? And uh, I mean, it is true that we wanted to make sure that we had the best possible handle on the conditions in the budget before we finalised some of these decisions. That's not completely unusual. I've been involved in budgets before uh, that have taken that pretty cautious and conservative approach. We wanted to get a good handle on revenue, but we had already decided that we wanted to do something for people doing it tough. But inevitably, you get a sense of your revenue, you get a sense of the economic forecast, and you try and make the best decisions that you can based on all that. 
Uh, the deficit for next year is projected to be about $14 billion, but economists are already saying if we see commodity prices as high as we have this year, another surplus is within reach. Uh, do you think it's confusing to voters to hear how difficult the budgetary challenges are on the one hand and then you've, uh, you know, in two months, the first surplus and, you know, in a year's time, possibly a second surplus on your watch? Yeah, first of all, I mean, we, let's not get ahead of ourselves on the on next year. Um you know, the, the budget's only a day old. I don't really want to kind of speculate about the one that will be in 12 months' time. Um, there are good reasons to be really cautious about the assumptions in the budget around revenue in particular. You know, commodity prices can be volatile. We're expecting unemployment to tick up a little bit. Uh, and so all of those things will feature. And so I would rather be cautious and conservative about these sorts of things. But I think your broader point is probably right. You know, it is a it is a challenge to explain to people that the budget can be getting a bit better in the near term, but still be difficult in the medium term. It's not always a simple conversation, but what I try and do, what I've tried to do since I've been the treasurer, uh, is to be upfront with people, to talk up to people, not down to them, and to try to explain to them what we're grappling with when we put these budgets together. And I've been really pleased with the response of that, not universally, of course, but I think I think people uh, there is an appetite in the community for people to understand how we get to these kinds of decisions, what we're grappling with, and so we try and be upfront about that, even as we're grappling with some of these sorts of things in real time, so that people understand what we're dealing with. The budget forecasts great success fighting inflation down to three and a quarter percent in the next financial year and within the RBA's two to three percent target ban for the following three years. For the people doing it toughest to getting, you know, $40 a fortnight or $2.86 a day increase in job seeker from Tuesday's budget, given what your poverty experts told you about this seriously inadequate payment, will there be more help in the future when you can't be accused of causing inflation by helping the well, first of all, on the $40 a fortnight, I mean, I, I genuinely understand and respect uh, the view of people who say we should have done more. I, I mean, I genuinely do. I'm not, it's, you know, these are almost universally good people uh, with good motivations who would rather us do a bit more in the budget. I understand that. There are also people who think we shouldn't do anything on the base rate of job seeker. Uh, but what we try to do in addition to job seeker in rent and energy and some of the other payments that we are changing in this budget is to recognise that there's more than one way to provide support to people. Uh, in terms of the future, again, you know, I don't want to sort of on the day after the 23 budget, you know, write the 24 budget. Uh, but the commitment that I think the Prime Minister has given most uh, eloquently and clearly is as a Labor government, you know, we will always look to do what we can. We'll always look to do what we can to support vulnerable people in particular. Uh, when the economic conditions and the budgetary conditions allow, uh, if we can do more for people, we will. Mm-hmm. On Tuesday night, you referred to more work to do, but substantial progress on some of the structural issues with the budget. Do you think revenue measures or cutting spending is going to have a bigger contribution to budget repair moving forward? Well, I think inevitably there's a combination. We've seen that in the October budget last year and also in this week's budget, that there's really three ways that you can go about putting the budget on a more responsible, sustainable footing. The major one for us is spending restraint when we get these upward revisions to revenue to make sure that we're using that to improve the budget and get the debt levels down so we pay less interest on it. Uh, but that's also combined with you know modest but meaningful tax changes in this budget, five big ones, compliance, uh, multinationals, PRRT, 
cigarettes, and uh, one more superannuation. And that's the combination that we've chosen for this budget. And that will make a difference to the structural position of the budget as well. But inevitably, there's a combination of all three of those areas. Doing the most heavy lifting this time around is the spending restraint. The multinational tax floor aspect of the budget was a a little underwhelming. Before the election, uh, Labor thought it was going to get $1.9 billion. uh, And the measures in October and on Tuesday night didn't quite uh, reach that mark. Uh, In fact, they were dwarfed by more than $3 billion from a GST uh, crackdown. So I'm just wondering, is is it easier to book revenue than it is to actually collect? And are you confident that you'll get all that extra GST? Uh, Well, the GST goes to the states and territories. And so they give us a hand uh, with those compliance measures. That's a good arrangement. We support that, but we don't see a cent of that typically, the GST one. Uh, On multinational taxes, I mean, this is a kind of a notoriously complex area and there's two pieces of work here. The election commitments were about what we were doing here in Australia. The OECD thing, the two-pillar OECD approach, which I won't uh, bore your listeners with uh, heaps of detail on, is basically what the world has signed up to and what governments in Australia, both political persuasions, have signed up to. And in this budget, we implemented a part of that uh, which uh, makes the implementation of the global minimum tax possible. We're implementing a domestic minimum tax, which is aligned with the OECD process to kick in in 2024. Uh, That one is not a big revenue earner, you're right, uh, but it's not the only thing we're doing in multinationals. Mm. Uh, Now, there are big savings in this budget, um, particularly from uh, limiting the growth in the NDIS. Are those savings believable? And are there other big saving measures that you're working on down the line? I'm thinking particularly of infrastructure, which there wasn't a lot of reprofiling or reprioritisation in this budget, but uh, we know there's a review that could result in that in future. Well, we're doing a heap of work with the states and territories and with the relevant agencies uh, to make sure we're getting value for money out of the infrastructure pipeline, but the $120 billion that we've committed to over 10 years will stay the same. It'll just be the composition of that uh, that we're trying to work out at the moment. When it comes to the pressures on the budget and what do we do to try and make them a bit more sustainable, the two big ones are interest costs on debt. We made a substantial amount of progress on that in the budget. We'll pay way less interest on less debt as a consequence of our approach. And the other one's the NDIS, as you mentioned. The NDIS is something we believe in. We want to make sure that people get the help that the system was designed to provide. Uh, But in order to do that, we've got to moderate the growth in costs. So there's some near-term measures, but there is the medium-term target uh, where we will work with the NDIA, we'll work with the sector to try and moderate the growth in those costs without jeopardising the care that people have a reasonable right to expect. Uh, beyond that, about other savings, you know, clearly if there are opportunities to put spending on a more sustainable level, like what we've done in defence, frankly, by offsetting the cost of the uh, defence projects over the forward estimates, we're always on the lookout for ways to make the budget more responsible. Mm-hmm. Now, on stage three tax cuts, uh, you've said there's been no policy change and it hasn't been a big feature of deliberations in this budget, uh, but it's they still sit there as something that the Greens, Crossbench and others can point to and say, well, why not get some revenue back there? Um, you defended it on Wednesday on the basis it gives income earners back, creep back as they earn more. But, you know, do, do you worry you'll be defending it all the, all the way to election day and beyond? Oh, that's not really how I approach it. I mean, the way we approach it is we legislated them in, I think, 2019 from memory. 
And the reason they're not mentioned in subsequent budgets is because they're baked into the to the bottom line. Uh, I do get asked about it a lot, uh, and I understand the view that people are putting to me, including the question I got from your good self on Wednesday at the press club. Uh, but I just want people to remember as well um, that they kick in at $45,000 and that it is actually a defensible objective uh, over time to try and return some of this bracket creep to people. And I think the conversation that you and I had at the press club in front of uh, hundreds of our closest friends was really about uh, the suggestions that people put to us from time to time about a better way to do that. We haven't changed our position on that. But uh, once again, like with JobSeeker, I listen respectfully to people who've got a different view. Uh, One of the biggest risks to the budget is uh, climate change. Uh, Could you give a sense of how significant that is and in terms of the investments that the budget makes in renewable energy, um, how Australia is going to try and turn that into an opportunity? Yeah. So, well, no treasurer has made climate change and net zero and the vast industrial opportunities of cleaner and cheaper energy more central to a budget speech than I did this week, this past week. And that's very, very deliberate because I think this is Australia's big chance. And if you think about what determined that last generation of prosperity we had in this country, opening ourselves up to the world and all of those great things that former Labor governments have done, for us, the equivalent is getting the energy transformation right. Net zero is a huge opportunity for Australia, a massive, massive opportunity for Australia. And I personally think that it will be the key determinant of whether we succeed or fail in the defining decade ahead. And that's why we've got billions of dollars more investment in cleaner and cheaper energy technology in the budget, part of $40 billion, $40 billion over a couple of budgets uh, to invest in what I think is not just the right thing to do by the environment, as important as that is, not just about getting uh, household costs and business costs down, as important as that is, but really grabbing this immense opportunity. If we miss this opportunity, if we let it go begging, other countries will do a great job of it and they'll reap the benefits and I want Australia to reap the benefits. That's the investment uh, aspect of it, but obviously climate change, you know, we can do our part, but we're also sort of hostage to reductions that other countries may or may not make. What sort of impact would it have on the budget, you know, differences in energy prices, increased, you know, and more severe natural disasters? What, what, what sort of impact? Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, if we if we get this wrong as a as a planet, you know, more frequent, more severe weather events, uh, and all the degradation and devastation that comes from uh, not limiting the uh, warming of the planet. I mean, I think I think all of that. Certainly among sensible people, all of that is broadly accepted. Uh, What we want to do is take it to the next step and say, where are the opportunities for Australia and its people in this transformation? And so it matters for heavy industry here at home, big chance for hydrogen in particular, big priority of the budget, but also we should be exporting when it comes to clean energy and clean energy technology. And we want to back people in who are going to do that. Every country in one way or another, or almost every country, is having a version of this same conversation, is how do we make sure that we are beneficiaries, not victims, of the global shift to net zero? That's the conversation we're having as a cabinet and as a government. We have it frequently. This is a key part of how we grapple with the future economy. And if we, with a little bit of support from government, a bit of leadership, a bit of collaboration, I think this can be Australia's big chance.
Now, there were some measures uh, we didn't see in this budget, but uh, you know, Labor has said they are keen to do, uh, removing the activity test for childcare subsidies, paying superannuation on paid parental leave. And I'm not sure what your position on this one is, but the Women's Economic Equality Task Force asked for you to pay early childhood educators uh, more. So can I get a sense of um, when there might be some progress on yep. those issues? Yep. Uh, all important topics, but each have got a different answer. Uh, so for uh, the activity test, I have had a good look at that. Uh, we've got a couple of reviews in Anna Lee and Jason Clare's portfolio, uh, which are very, very relevant to our considerations on that. And so it made sense for us to see the conclusions of those reviews. So that's that one. Uh, on paying the superannuation guarantee on paid parental leave, that is personally a priority for me. I'm not sure... Uh, when we will be able to fund it. Uh, but we have said pretty clearly for some time. To be really upfront with your listeners about it, we contemplated it in the October budget and decided it's instead to to make the PPL, to extend PPL itself. Mm. It was kind of an either or given the budget pressures that we were under. We went with the PPL extension, but you know, at some point, hopefully uh, not too far down the track, we hope to be able to afford to do that one. And then the third one I'll need reminding on, oh, childcare, uh, early childhood educators. So one of the reasons, really a key reason, uh, that we changed the broken bargaining system is because it has disadvantaged for too long big care economy workforces, particularly ones dominated by women and early childhood educators. Uh, that applies to early childhood education. And so we've set up this new system. It makes sense to see if it will work. Uh, when it comes to bargaining for these big workforces. Uh, we do understand, we speak to the unions about it all the time. We do understand that there is pressure there, but we're hopeful that the system that we set up, uh, which took a bit of work to get it through the parliament, but it was worth it. And I hope it's worth it when it comes to the care economy and particularly for workers who are women. Now, the blowback from the coalition on the budget has been not enough for middle Australia and adding too much. To, and, and too and, much. And adding to inflation. <laughs> uh, and in question time on Wednesday, uh, attacking the net migration figures. Yeah. Is any of that surprising or disappointing or what would you say to their reaction? Oh, uh, it's all kind of boringly predictable, isn't it? You know, they say they say we're spending too much and we're spending too little. You know, they don't they don't recognise either they don't know which is troubling or they are lying about it, which is equally troubling, that the population figures are actually less than what they forecast in a couple of years ago in the life of their government. Yes, we're getting a recovery in student numbers and tourism numbers, but it's not making up for the trajectory that was there a couple of years ago before COVID. Uh, so, I mean, we we anticipate and expect this, this kind of stuff. You know, I, I don't... It is genuinely hard to take them seriously and they've got a lot of internal dramas. Their default position is to say no to everything. They're, they're voting no to building more social and affordable housing, which just beggars belief. Uh, they vote no to everything. They even voted no to the energy relief plan, which is working and which will see people get help with their energy bills and then overnight they're trying to pretend that they supported it all along. So these are all reasons why they're not taken especially seriously. I just get on with my job, try and take the right decisions for the right reasons and I'm not that focused on what they're saying. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the biggest planks uh, in the budget was the big investment in bulk billing, but there's no sort of target or guarantee about um, what that will do for bulk billing rates. Uh, what would success uh, look like for that measure? Uh, and broadening out, as last question, what would success be for the budget overall? 
Well, what we're trying to do there is we're trying to recognise that one of the big reasons why people have got cost of living pressures is out-of-pocket health costs. And that's because the central premise and the central promise of Medicare, which is universal health care, is not available to enough people if you can't access a bulk billing doctor. And so we need to change the incentives for doctors uh, to continue to bulk bill, particularly for kids under 16 and for concession card holders. And so $3.5 billion in a tight budget uh, to provide that cost of living relief, but also that important health policy outcomes as well. We're confident that that will make a difference in communities. Uh, and we'll roll it out as soon as we can this year uh, in uh, towards the, the second half of the year. Uh, and we hope that people recognise that one of the government's overriding objectives really is to strengthen Medicare. It's not in good nick. It's not in good shape. And we want to reverse that. And that's why I found billions of dollars in the budget for it. And what would success look like for the oh, most important people, measure for yeah, the budget? Well, well, more people being ac- able to access a bulk billing doctor. Uh, and the health minister, I'm sure um, I'm sure you'd be happy to have him on. He can talk to you about the various ways that we measure that. Uh, but from my point of view, conceptually, uh, and you know, from a point of view of the budget, you know, every dollar spent making it easier for people to access a bulk billing doctor is a dollar well spent. I think that's all we have time for. Thank you very much. Appreciate it, Paul. Good to chat. My next guest is Senator Jane Hume, who is the Shadow Finance Minister and the Chair of the Senate Select Committee on the Cost of Living. On Thursday, the Opposition Leader Peter Dutton delivered his budget reply speech and outlined an alternative to Labor's increase to JobSeeker payments, proposing instead to allow welfare recipients to earn more before their payments are reduced. To tell us more about the budget reply and the bits that the Coalition liked or disliked from Labor's budget, let's welcome Senator Hume. Welcome, Senator Hume. Great to be with you, Paul. Now, your Cost of Living Committee uh, delivered its interim report the week before the budget. What did you find were the biggest cost of living pressures on households right now? Paul, that Cost of Living Committee has been travelling right around the country and it's been talking to ordinary Australians, but it's also been talking to business groups and associations, it's been talking to peak bodies and to charities and also to people in particular industries. And we actually only touched on a few big topics, things like energy, which was one of the great drivers of the cost of living. Housing, we touched on that one as well. But we also did a bit of a deep dive into the charity sector because in the charity sector in particular, we were seeing that that not just the primary effects of the cost of living crisis, but the secondary ones as well. So for instance, Meals on Wheels, they were finding that people were ordering fewer meals than they used to. Maybe they ordered five a week, now they're only ordering three. But of course, the knock-on effect of that is the human contact that comes with Meals on Wheels, particularly for some sort of isolated or disadvantaged people. Uh, The other was Food Bank, who were telling us that they were seeing an increased number of people through the door that were dual income and sometimes even people with mortgages. And there was one food charity, actually, that when we asked them, because we did a bit of a shark tank at the end of each session, what was the one thing that, you know, government could do that would make the cost of living crisis that you're facing easier? And they said, bring interest rates down because high interest rates are affecting businesses, affecting households and pushing people into the charity sector. But that 
other secondary feature, which I thought was very interesting, was that charities are finding it hard to get volunteers to work in them because the volunteers are going out to work to deal with their own cost of living crisis. So you can see that sort of flow on effect. So that was one of the other things that we were looking at was this interim report was really about energy. It was about housing. It was about the charity sector. But we've still got more to look at and, uh, and that committee will report in November. Now, we'll get on to inflationary pressures and interest rates in a minute, but I just want to go to some of the uh, specific measures uh, in the government's budget on on Tuesday. Mm -hmm. If you told some of those uh, charities who came before your committee uh, that the people that they serve would be getting, you know, up to $500 for electricity bills, two months of medicine for the price of one, better access to bulk billing, $40 a fortnight increase in JobSeeker or more for the 55s to 60s and a 15% increase in the top rate of rent assistance. Do you think they would have thought that was generous and would help take a bite out of the problems? Well, I think they would have thought that it would be a start, certainly. But again, when you tackle a cost of living crisis by dealing with the symptoms rather than the cause, well, potentially it's only temporary because all of those increases can be then eaten away by inflation. You know, we know that inflation decreases your purchasing power, it erodes your savings, it lowers real wages, and of course, it also lowers your standard of living. So you can do those, you know, one-off handouts or you can, you know, do certain aspects of cost of living. But if you're not dealing with the cause, well, then really you potentially could be making the situation worse. In his budget reply on Thursday, Peter Dutton said the coalition is on board for all of those welfare and cost of living measures, with the one exception of he criticised the $40 a fortnight job seeker increase. Can you share uh, what the thinking was there about uh, drawing the line at that measure? Yeah, I think we should be very clear. You know, that's something that we will definitely consider, but we would like to see this done differently. And the reason why we want to see it done differently is because we have record low unemployment now. Now, I'm probably showing my age, but when I was back at university, 5% unemployment was considered full employment. We're now at 3.5%. And yet we still have this core of people that are on job seeker, you know, looking for work. There are at one stage earlier this year, we actually saw parity, the same number of job vacancies as job seekers. So the the most important thing from our perspective is how do we get those job seekers off welfare and into work? And that was why we proposed a change to the income earning threshold so that you can earn more but not lose your job seeker while you're earning more. We did this with the pension work bonus about this time last year or just after the election last year. That was a proposal by the coalition to allow older Australians to go back to work, do a few more hours or an extra day without it eating into their pension. And that did two things. It helped older Australians that are on the pension to deal with their own cost of living crisis, but it also filled a skills gap, you know, a skills shortage, labour shortage. We think that the same can be done with JobSeeker, that those people that have been perpetually on JobSeeker for a long time will have an incentive to get into work. So this is very much a carrot. It's not a stick. Hmm. And just asking for a bit more detail on that alternative proposal, do you know how much it would cost or is there a particular target of what contribution that could make to the workforce? Because, you know, the pension bonus 
is a, a good idea, relatively benign. Labor picked it up uh, at their Jobs and Skills Summit, but it hasn't necessarily seen a big rush of, of people uh, back into the workforce. Maybe they're enjoying their retirement too much. Do you have an idea of you know how many job seekers and, and how many hours a week this might encourage people to work? Well, I think that we would like to see a bigger take-up of this on JobSeeker than on the pension because, let's face it, you're right, people that are on the pension have theoretically retired, whereas job seekers are just that, looking for work. So we would hope that we would see this as an incentive perhaps for a higher take-up of JobSeeker. Now, we'll get it all costed up and we'll also make sure that we move it as an amendment to the legislation that will be put forward to raise the rate of job seeker. But, you know, we know that, you know, $40 a fortnight is terrific. Under the coalition, we raised it by $50 a fortnight. This additional $40 will make a difference, as will indexing of job seeker, because, you know, unlike most wages, job seeker is in fact indexed. But more importantly, we want to encourage the change of behaviour. So we would like to see this a huge demand for this particular measure. So the conversation is still there to be had about, you know, the coalition could still support the $40 a fortnight increase. It's omission from the list of things that you supported in the budget reply. We shouldn't read too much into that by the sounds of it. Well, we want to make sure that disadvantaged Australians are looked after. There is no doubt about that. But we also want to see people that are looking for work, job seekers, get into work, particularly at a time when jobs are plentiful. You don't need to look very far. You know, you walk down any high street in Australia at the moment and there are help wanted signs in the window. When we've got that demand for jobs, well, we want to make sure that we're transitioning those people that are looking for work into those work. And we think this is a good way of going about it. Mm -hmm. And just returning to Labor's budget, do you think it did enough for middle Australia? Well, We've been unpacking this an awful lot. And quite frankly, if you're over 16, if you're not a welfare recipient, if you're not a parent, there isn't all that much there. And more importantly, there is a cohort of Australians, mortgage holders in particular, that are shouldering the burden at the moment of high inflation. Because, of course, when you've got high inflation, the RBA is forced, if unless the government uses its fiscal policy levers, the RBA is forced to use its monetary policy levers to bring inflation down. The only way they can do that is with one blunt instrument and that's interest rates. So unless the RBA is receiving signals from the government that its fiscal policy is slowing the economy down, the RBA has to do it. And it's those people that have mortgages or business loans that tend to suffer the most from those rising interest rates. But there's flow-on effects as well, of course, because say you own an investment property and you've got rising interest rates and your repayments go up, well, you tend to put your rents up too. So again, there's that knock-on effect of high inflation. It is insidious. It is the thief of the night. It is the dragon that has to be slayed. Jim Chalmers said that. I stole his quote. The inflation dragon has to be slayed. But unfortunately, this budget just didn't go far enough to do that. On the contrary argument, I mean, it it is $4 billion in surplus this year. There's been economists, uh, although Chris Richardson said that, uh, you know, he's worries that the Reserve Bank might take another swing of the bat. There are plenty of economists uh, on the other end of the scale. Commonwealth Bank, I think, has sent a note out today saying they don't think it's inflationary. Both sides of the debate cherry-picking their experts here. Isn't it a bit simpler than that, that if it's in surplus, it's, it's not inflationary? 
Yeah, actually, I think it goes the other way around. There are plenty of economists out there, whether it be at Standard Poor's, the rating agency, or Goldman Sachs, or UBS. Even the Grattan Institute came out and said, yes, this budget is inflationary. One surplus does not a contractionary budget or one budget make. There's actually deficits that are forecast as far as the eye can see after this one year of a surplus, which comes from high commodity prices and high income tax revenue, largely because of things like bracket creep caused by inflation. So that fact that, you know, that, 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 that expenditure has ballooned out in coming years and that there doesn't seem to be the fiscal discipline of keeping budgets under control, that sends the message to the RBA that potentially this could be an inflationary budget. And in fact, you can even see the Labor Party's language changing. At the beginning of the week, they were talking about, you know, a very sort of modest and targeted cost of living relief that won't be inflationary or it could actually even be deflationary. By the middle of the week, they were saying, oh, look, it it won't do any harm. And by the end of the week, you've got the economists saying, actually, this could do a lot of harm if the RBA is forced to either put up rates or, and let's face it, doing nothing isn't enough either because the longer that inflation stays high, the longer the RBA keeps rates higher. We want to see rates come back down because that's the way for that sustainable cost of living relief that affects a broader range, you know, all of Australia rather than just select few. There weren't a lot of big spending measures in Peter Dutton's budget reply. I I just wonder, other than the importance of taking pressure off interest rates and trying to reduce inflation, are we going to see out of your cost of living committee and out of the coalition measures to try and ease the cost of living moving into the next election? Or is the budget just so tight that people shouldn't expect a whole lot of extra support? Well, I think that there are lots of different angles to which, from which you can come to this question. And of course, we want to reduce the cost of living because, you know, when you reduce the cost of living, you increase the standards of living. And that should be the objective of any government, sustained increases in the standard of living of its citizens. Uh, And it can be done with many ways. For instance, one of the things that the Cost of Living Committee heard was that increasing competition, for instance, can bring downward pressure on inflation. The best example, I suppose, is supermarkets, Coles and Woolworths, so, you know, big players, but there's Aldi and Metcash who run all the IGAs providing that competition. And we had all of them lined up at the Cost of Living Committee, which I thought was um, was really interesting. And, you know, the discussion across the table on how you can, in fact, increase competition. And we've got the ACCC involved in that one as well. The other thing you can do is reduce red tape. If you uh, reduce the sort of regulatory burden on particular industries, that's the cost that you that won't get passed on to um, to consumers. And again, you know, there's um, taxes are another way of doing it. So uh, in the budget on Tuesday, there were two new taxes that sort of fell under the radar. One is on farmers, and that's around bios, biodiversity, um, a biodiversity levy. And the other one was on truckies, which is a freight movement charge. Now, both of those sound reasonably innocuous, but put them together. And what you've just done is seen farmers 
and transport companies have a reason to pass on the, those increased costs that they're facing to consumers in the form of high grocery prices. So, see, cost of living is a very difficult issue to manage, but at the same time, it's not a binary issue. It's not do you increase your spending, do you not increase your spending, do you increase your job seeker, do you not increase job seeker. There are so many things that can be done that will bring on that downward pressure. Well, since we're not the ABC, I can probably out myself as a fan of Aldi wine and cheese. Uh, So uh, whatever you're working up there in in your competition policy, I'm looking forward to seeing more detail about that. But just coming back to when we can expect bigger and newer policies from the coalition, I mean, in in opposition, Labor brought out its cheaper childcare policy uh, very early in that term in opposition and sort of campaigned on it all the way to the election. Will we see a big idea like that from the coalition or, or is nuclear power uh, the biggest it's going to get? Well, I think you've already seen a number of announcements from the opposition, which is actually quite early in an electoral cycle. You know, we came out very quickly out of the blocks with the pension work bonus. In fact, that was before the government had implemented any of its policies. So that was uh, number one. Yes, we've said that we should consider nuclear power in the energy mix. There's hardly a country in the world, in fact, I can't think of one that is credibly going to reach its net zero 2050 targets without nuclear energy in the mix. And as a country that is rich in the resources that are required to be a nuclear energy country, it's sort of silly that we would ideologically not even include it in our thinking. So I think that's a very important policy differentiator. The idea that we would incent, incentivize I hate that word, it's so management consulting speak, isn't it? But that we would provide incentives to people to get into work, whether it be you know, pensioners or whether it be job seekers. Again, that's a policy that differentiates us from the government at the moment. But there's also other things that were raised last night in the budget and reply that I think are really important stakes in the ground. One of them was on gambling advertising, for instance, banning gambling advertising in live sports. This is one of those issues that we get a lot of mail about or people stop us on the streets and talk about that sort of insidious, pernicious gambling advertising, which really ruins family time in front of live broadcasts of sports. So I think that that's a real stake in the ground too. But there's others, you know, we will reinstate, say, the cashless debit cut, but only if communities want it and only if they ask for it. And there'll be a greater focus on women's health. You know, the women's budget statement, I've poured through this women's budget statement from this week, and there's an awful lot in there about measuring things, and and don't get me wrong, measuring things are important, but there's a lot of money going into more measuring as opposed to actually dealing with the issue. Uh, And the issues that they do speak about are all about welfare. Job seeker, again, is mentioned, and, you know, new parent payments or single parent payments, again, noble in themselves. But there's nothing really there about women's health and there's really very little there about women's empowerment too. You know, there's women should be, you know, well, they are one of the fastest growing cohorts of new business owners. And all of those incentives seem to be removed. I think that's a bit disappointing. But the women's health piece was really lacking. So we've said that we'll invest in ovarian cancer research and also do a review of the PBS and Medicare to see where those very female-specific medicines and treatments are potentially could be better funded. So things like polycystic ovary syndrome and, you know, those sorts of things, which I think will be, is, is a really important issue for Australian women. 
I think there will be pressure on Labor on the gambling ads idea uh, from Mr Dutton's speech. I'm not so sure about nuclear. Chris Bowen seems quite comfortable rejecting that as too expensive and our political editor, Catherine Murphy, has noted it would likely require a carbon price or subsidies to work. But I want to move on to talk about uh, stage three tax cuts Mm. because a big part of the budget reply was also, you know, warning Labor, don't you dare break this promise. I I just want to get your assessment of, do you think the coalition has won that argument and that Labor is going to not return to that discussion about recarving up the stage three tax cuts? Or do you think that that's going to be a debate moving into the next election? I would love to think that that ship has sailed, but unfortunately, I don't think it has. The stage three tax cuts are really important and we speak about them in sort of one breath, but let's face it, they are the third stage of a series of reforms. We believe in lower, simpler and fairer taxes. And this part of the reform process actually removes an entire tax bracket. That means anyone earning under $200,000 will pay no more than 30 cents in the dollar. They'll keep 70 cents of everything that they earn. And it doesn't matter what happens to inflation, because let's face it, one of the big problems that we have, and of course, one of the reasons why there's been such a big surplus this year, is because of bracket creep. As wages rise, you move into a different tax bracket, you end up paying more tax. And that's not a sustainable situation. In fact, I think some reports I saw in the paper, and forgive me if I, because I, I haven't got them in front of me, but there were some reports today saying that even if the stage three tax cuts are passed, it actually only takes us up to like 2019 levels of how much of your own money you earn. So I think that puts the urgency back on the government. This is a really necessary reform. But of course, they're very non-committal about this. They're trying to walk both sides of the street. And I think that we'll probably see them try and tinker at the edges. To be honest, the fact that they constantly come out saying how much these tax cuts will cost the taxpayer, I think that in itself, just the language suggests that they hate this. They hate this reform. And uh, it's not a cost to the taxpayer if it's simply just a smaller expenditure envelope. You're allowing more people to keep more of the money that they earned. That's what a tax cut does. We've had a few Victorian Liberals on the podcast since the loss at the Aston by-election, but you're especially qualified to discuss the party's prospects because you conducted the Liberals' post-2022 election review. So could I ask, please, you know, what happened in 2022 and at Aston and what do you think the Liberals need to do to win back support from women, young people and middle Australia? Look, you can never pin an election loss on one issue alone. And 2022 was no different. You know, we were a nine-year-old government. We uh, had gone through COVID, which was a really difficult time for everybody. And there was an awful lot of people that just wanted to put that behind them and move on. And I can totally understand why that was the case. There were other people that were, you know, hardcore committed Liberals that watched the way the government behaved during COVID and said, well, hang on, what happened to my party? We don't spend money like that. Now, I would defend the money that was spent during COVID because, you know, we actually did hit a balanced budget, believe it or not, at the end of 2019 in my EFO. Because it was my EFO and not a budget, nobody really cared. But um, because of that, that's why we had the firepower to deal with COVID the way we did. Let's put all that aside. There was a you know, considerable loss of primary vote, not just for the coalition, I might add, also for the Labor Party, the major party. People had moved away. They wanted something 
different. And I understand that that's the case. But it also is incumbent upon us to make sure that we tell people what it is that we stand for and what it is that we want for them. You know, we want to be able to, you know, say to the next generation, you should feel comfortable knowing that you have every opportunity and every ability to do better than your parents did. That was the way it used to be. Every generation thought that they could do better than the one ahead. We're now hitting the first generation that says, I'll never be able to have what my parents have. That's sad. That's not what a Liberal government is all about. So how do we reframe our policy positions to make sure that we can speak to those younger generations, I'm not talking like young people in inverted commas, but those younger generations that want to get ahead, that want to have the opportunities that their parents had. And personally, I think the values and the principles that we have, which are timeless, allow people to do that. The idea that you um, you, know, you believe in a smaller government because that makes for, for bigger citizens, that we believe in lower and simpler and fairer taxes and you keeping more of your own money, that we believe in the importance of families, whatever your family looks like, whatever way, shape it's made up. We believe that families are central to a cohesive society and we believe that small businesses are hopefully all aiming to be big businesses one day. They are the backbone of the economy and we should help them along their way. So that choice and personal responsibility mantra sometimes doesn't necessarily resonate, but if people can see themselves reflected, see their daily lives and their personal ambitions and aspirations reflected in your policy platform, well, that's how you win elections and how you win hearts and minds on the way through. I'm not saying it makes it sound easy. It's not easy. It's very difficult because you, you've got your opponents, whether they be in government or opposition, hurling stuff at you at one side. You've got the media as well. You've got social media now. That's a whole new thing. And, you know, perhaps we do need to modernise and make sure that there are avenues for that message to get through because nobody, doesn't really matter what party you're from, gets into politics to make this country worse. Everybody gets into politics because you want to make your country better. It's one of the most patriotic things you can do next to serving in the military. We just have to make sure that we can better communicate how we see that vision play out for all Australians. Well, thanks very much for coming on the pod and explaining that alternative vision for leading the country from the opposition benches. Really appreciate it. It's been great to be with you. Thanks, Paul. This episode was produced by Karishma Luthria, Daniel Simo and Alison Chan. The executive producer is Miles Martignoni. I'm Paul Karp. Australian politics will be back on Tuesday when the executive director of Essential, Peter Lewis, will be here with the results of Guardian's Essential poll. Thanks for listening and see you next week. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free. Or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.